Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. This is an RNZ podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast hour. I'm Richard Scott. Each week I listen to lots of audio and share the best of what I hear with you. Today, festive family fun in the nightmare before Christmas. It was that situation where you needed to get everything out of your system. Every few hours somebody else was falling. It's only a matter of time. Everything had to go and quick. Then... July 8th, 1965. The day of one of the biggest unsolved mass murders on Canadian soil. So who planted a bomb on board a Canadian airliner? And Sound Opinion shares its favourite diss tracks, music that settles a score. How you gonna name yourself after a man gun and have a man bun? Finally, the podcast Sapiens looks into the emerging discipline of space archaeology. Identity, politics, religion, these are essential elements of what makes us human. And what Justin and Alice were observing was the first time humans were figuring them out in space. And next time you hear something good, then do let me know. Pods at rnz.co.nz is the email address. And on Twitter, we're at RNZ Podcast Hour. Christmas is almost here, that special festive time for family, friends, food and fun. Over in Australia, Mike Williams' extended family can only all get together every couple of years to celebrate. This is his story about one memorable family Christmas, when things didn't quite go according to plan. My brother would always come in with the same words every Christmas morning. Katie, Santa's been. (laughs) Yeah. My family loves Christmas. William's Christmas is on a two-year cycle. Because Katie and Martin live in Queensland. Every second Christmas. They come down from Queensland. She always comes down too early, for starters. Sort of like there's 23 months of anticipation till the next time we meet. The family has expanded enormously. Work shuts down. You lose count how many there are. 17 of us. We have Holly. It's all about Christmas and family at that time. It's just such a special day, you know, the best day of the year. Lots of kids playing. A lot more noise. A lot more mess everywhere. Gives it a whole new dimension. Lots of fun, lots of laughter. Uh, more tears. It's the only time of year really we spend a lot of time with each other. Terrific to have all those people come and celebrate with us. Wouldn't want to be anywhere else. Traditions were really important for us. You've only got to do something once in our family and somebody will describe it as being a tradition. They do like their traditions, Katie's family. Christmas Eve is is one of those times for a special meal tradition. We always have the same dish. Everyone's looking forward to this prawn salad dinner. I'm I'm part of this family. Prawn salad dinner, I guess you'd call Uh, it. You know, but I, 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 I... Everyone seems to look forward to it. It's just... 
It's not my cup of tea. Every mouthful is delicious. But I do it because I love the family and, you know. I like the dish, but I don't like prawns. Look, I, I'm, the, I'm the uncle. I, I've never noticed it, to tell you the truth. Pretty memorable. Is that right? For the last four, five years? Six years, seven years. Eight years? Nine years? Never noticed it's the same dish each year. I'm serious. What is in the prawn dish? Um, prawns. Prawns. Prawns, lettuce. Prosciutto, chives. Actually, I'm trying to think. And, oh, um, yeah. Mixed salad leaves. Orangey coloured sauce. sauce. Cut up rock, rock melon. melon. They threw some uh, croutons oh, in there. Oh, and it's got um, avocado. Parmesan cheese sprinkled on it. Is it bacon or is uh, it. I um, don't have the bacon because I find that. Is that a pancetta, maybe? Tends to uh, upset me, so I keep away from the bacon. And um, um, a sweet chili sauce. It rock, it's rock melon. I think that's it. Or is it mango? All I know is it's delicious. Everyone gets in, throws it all together, count out the prawns and off we go, eat it. The actual important part of the tradition is that we only have it once a year, Christmas Eve, none other time. Makes the meal very special. I don't know why, it's just... No, I've never had that dish outside of Christmas. But my daughter-in-law, Erica... Had the temerity to... We just decided that, oh, it would be really nice to have that prawn salad dinner tonight. It's a brave person who breaks the tradition. Even though it's not Christmas. And it was good. Real good. Two other members of the family were not very happy and did not want me to get the recipe. I want to know how did she get that recipe? Mm, how dare she? No. W- what did I think I was doing making this dish? This is a Christmas Eve meal. It doesn't matter. You can have the prawn dish whenever you want. Would they care that I had eaten the Christmas Eve dinner? <sighs> Maybe. I felt a little bit bad. Do I care that they care? (laughs) Not at all. (laughs) That was all done in jest. Nobody really minded. I cared and I wasn't joking. Yeah, Michael. And didn't like it. I didn't like it. He's probably the only one that didn't like it. Well, last year on Christmas Eve, we'd had a wonderful night together. Everyone's smiling, so happy. There's no excitement at all except the excitement that comes in the hours before Christmas. The night before Christmas, so much anticipation. So in the morning, slowly you're coming to consciousness and you realise, oh yeah, it's Christmas Day. I'm going to spend today with the people I love, my family. Whisper in my head for old times, saying, Katie, Santa's been. And then about one second later, (laughs) no, that's not it. Hold on a second. (laughs) sound of my dad vomiting. It doesn't stop. Lots and lots of times. You'd know, wherever you were in that house, no matter how large that house was. It's pretty strong. It's pretty strong vomit. My heart just sinks. What the hell? It's only one person sick. Sucks for them, but that doesn't change the day. It's just one person. I find out that dad's not the only one vomiting. Mum's vomiting too. It's not as loud as Greg is. All I could think about was how was I going to cook Christmas lunch when I felt so dreadful? I can't believe this. What's happening? So I was thinking, oh no, this is this is worse than we thought. In my stomach, there was pressure. Then as the morning unfolded, more and more people are going down. Pressure pushing up. And the saliva builds up. Something needed to get out of there. Run downstairs. I call my brother Matt. She said that... Mum and Dad are spewing. And then I told Katie that... So is Erica. (laughs) Yeah, then it just takes over your whole body. You've got no control. My husband, Martin, he starts vomiting too. Probably never been that sick before. Very, very violent. It just really hurt in my chest. I was that noisy... Uh, the neighbours were having a get-together in their backyard and everything went quiet.
I think I wrecked the neighbour's Christmas as well. <laughs> Who's going to be next? It's a ticking time bomb. Katie might have rung Michael and Joe was sick too. It was that situation where you needed to get everything out of your system. Every few hours somebody else was falling. It's only a matter of time. Everything had to go and quick. <laughs> ben went down first. Did you see your kids sick on Christmas Day? Probably about an hour after Ben, Josh started throwing up. They've got their presents, but they're too sick to play with them. Anywhere and everywhere. I'll never forget it. On the lounge, in the bed. We vomit everywhere. And that was the last I thought or cared about Christmas lunch. How could this happen? Christmas is not going to happen. And my dreams for Christmas are over. I was like all sad. I remember crying. I cried. Katie and Martin and the kids, they had to go home. So That's another two years. It's real. It's a human thing. This is life. Life hurts sometimes. Well, there's a great feeling of being cheated. Then I started thinking, how many times do we get to spend Christmas together in our lifetime? I started counting them. We haven't had a Christmas all together again since all that happened. This year is our big one again, so it's going to be doubly big this time. Maybe it's time to let it go anyway. Yes, definitely have the porn dish again. I never want to eat that stuff again. I think this year we should have it. We need to get back on that horse and keep the tradition going. We'd lost something very important. Stolen memories, you know, lost laughter, lost experience, lost stories. But on the other as well, this will be a Christmas we never forget. The Nightmare Before Christmas from Mike Williams, who works as Projects Producer at Triple J in Sydney. And I first heard that story on the BBC show Shortcuts, presented by Josie Long and produced by Eleanor McDowell. And I did ask Mike, and yes, apparently prawn salad is back on the Williams family Christmas menu again this year. In July 1965, Canadian Pacific Airlines Flight 21 crashed in British Columbia when a bomb went off on board. Everybody died, but more than 50 years on, still nobody knows who planted it. The Canadian Broadcasting Corporation's Uncover Bomb on Board tries to find out what really happened on Flight CP21. So about how long a walk? You know, I I usually don't time it, but I say maybe five or ten. So here, it's a beautiful trail, and there's some strawberries on the ground if you get hungry. You're right, it doesn't take long for sort of the pine smells and the... Mm-hmm. Can you smell the juniper? Yes, actually, yeah. that's the juniper with the Yeah, berries, exactly, right? yeah. yeah. Oh, look at the butterfly, look how beautiful that is. Yeah, there beautiful. are tons of be- butterflies on the trail. Yeah. How many times do you think you've done this hike? Um, I think I've probably been into the crash site about 25 times, more or less. Yeah. I have to admit, I mean, I'm starting to sort of feel the anticipation or, you know, the uh, the reality of, of where we'll be mm-hmm. in a few moments. And i got to tell you, I would not have come out here unless somebody like you had not just guided us here, but kind of made me feel like it's okay to be here. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, how would you describe it? If it's not a hiking destination, what is it? For me, it is sacred ground. It is akin to a graveyard. 52 people lost their lives here. and, um, And when I go out here, I know where my father was, more or less in the back section. And 
It's totally different than going to his gravestone in Mount Royal Cemetery in Montreal. That's sort of doesn't mean anything when I come back here. I've come out here sometimes by myself and just literally sensed the spirits of the souls lost. So as we, we get closer to the crash site, there's sort of bits of metal strewn about. It definitely was a, a violent crash. Look at this, the, one of the burnt trees has, it looks like people's initials in metal, in memory of flight CP-21, 52 lives lost, July 8, 1965. July 8, 1965, the day of one of the biggest unsolved mass murders on Canadian soil. This is Uncover, Bomb on Board. I'm Ian Hanamansing. And I'm Johanna Wagstaff. Chapter One. Good morning. Here is the CBC National News, read by Alec Trebek. As heavy fighting... July the 8th. Here we go. Thursday. Canadian Pacific Flight 21 was scheduled to take off from Vancouver International Airport at 2.42 p.m. Final destination of Whitehorse. Uh, 6.30, he was up. Seven o'clock with breakfast. Parents were squeezing in time for a final meal with the kids. It was a beautiful sunny day. Since it was my dad's last time we would be having breakfast together, all of us sat down at the table. 8.05, he was in the office by a bus. For members of the crew, it was just another day at work. There was a goodbye. The wife of the first officer dropped her husband off at our house, and then the first officer and my dad went on from our house to the airport. 12.15, had lunch. 13.30, they returned to the office. There was the last-minute rush to pack, calling a cab. We were all caught up in our playing, and uh, I think they were late, and they just uh, got into the, the taxi and went to the airport. And um, the final goodbye was from a distance. Slightly to your right at a mile and a half. 16.30, departed the office. 17.30, he was home. I did see some of the people that got on the plane. One lady that was from Norway and two little children. There were hugs in the departure lounge and a final boarding call. Little girl had a knapsack on her back with a doll in it. And uh, the little boy was dressed in an aqua knitted suit. 1745, word of CPA flight 21. Overdue. Canadian Pacific Flight 21, flying from Vancouver to Whitehorse with stops along the way. 59 minutes after it took off, an explosion on board. Good evening. A Canadian Pacific airliner has crashed in rugged country in the Caribou District of British Columbia. The latest word from search and rescue headquarters is that there were apparently no survivors in a CPA airline. 52 people were killed. Six crew members, 46 passengers. Three staccato cries of May Day and an eyewitness report of a mid-air explosion 
is about all that is known this morning of the British Columbia. We were just in our living room, and I heard on the radio, Canadian Pacific, so I was thinking, oh, what's happened? There's been a, a, an accident at 100-mile house. Well, of course, I am almost collapsed because nobody had told us. It was, it was, nobody told us that he'd been killed. All I wanted to do was go out the door and just run and run and run. My mother told us that my father had been killed and that he had been killed in the plane crash that we had just seen him off to. I said, oh, I was just wondering about a plane crash. And she said, oh, I just saw it on the TV and the, everyone was killed. And uh, so I said, my mom was on that plane. You know, your, your parents aren't coming home. This was no accident. This was pure murder. Police quickly concluded it was a deliberate act, not structural failure, not pilot error. It looked like the plane just falls straight from the sky. The whole plane. Police had four suspects, but no one claimed responsibility and no charges have ever been laid. I would like somebody to have to pay for all those wonderful people who lost their lives. To this day, the case of CP-21 remains unsolved. So many lives were impacted by this. I really want to know what happened. Roger. Cleared to maintain 14,000. After more than five decades, what does finding justice even look like? What can we find out? Can we get any closer to solving this mystery? Roger. If the person who set off that bomb died on the plane, it's not just about who did it and why, but given that four suspects were publicly identified, who has been wrongly accused for all these years? you get the sort of the first the first call that something was happening um, 20 minutes after the aircraft went down moments after air traffic control realized flight 21 was missing a nearby forest service dispatcher saw the billowing smoke he sent a plane to investigate what he thought was a forest fire the pilot confirmed the crash scene just 20 minutes after the mayday call he dropped rolls of toilet paper to mark the bodies he could see from the air. Right after that, calls went out to the nearest town, 100 Mile House. I knew before I even left out there that, that we knew it had been blown up. I had enough experience around airplanes and repairing them and this. Chuck Shaw McLaren was a volunteer ambulance driver. He was just 37 years old back in 1965. We found the tail section and the back end of the... When an airplane usually explodes in the air, it's pressure. So it comes from the outside. This was split wide open. And the 
It was very jagged, so it was very obvious. We knew that when we found the tail section that that did it, that told us that it was blown. It was murder. This was not an accident. This was pure murder. Chuck had been to a lot of accident scenes, and this time he knew right away this was foul play. And investigators came to the same conclusion, that someone had deliberately set off a bomb on CP21. An extract from the first episode of Season 2 of the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation's Uncover Bomb on Board, called The Crash, presented by Ian Hennemansing and Joanna Wagstaff and produced by Mika Anderson, Polly Ledger and Tiffany Foxcroft. You're listening to the Podcast Hour on RNZ National. Through various incarnations, Sound Opinions is a long-running music show that's been on air for around 25 years. In it, hosts Jim DeRogatis and Greg Cott display their encyclopedic and evolving knowledge of music, ranging from the mainstream to the obscure. As well as all the stuff you might expect, like big-name interviews and album reviews, they also devote whole episodes to music from a particular country – Russia, South Africa, and yes, New Zealand among them, and also to music arranged around a particular theme. So if you want, you can check out episodes dedicated to anxious anthems, songs about horses, best movie soundtracks, and dad rap. There's also a nice segment called The Rock Doctors, where the hosts step in to offer musical prescriptions for listeners. Here's a taste of what to expect from Sound Opinions, some of a recent episode about diss tracks. WBEZ Chicago and PRX, this is Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. And I'm Jim DeRogatis. Music can be a mighty force that brings people together, but it can also be weaponized. This week we'll share our favorite diss tracks, songs that settle a score. Plus, the rock doctors are back to help a mom find good music for her son. I realized I was going to have to expand my musical horizons to bring him up in a household that showed him that he could be a whole bunch of different things, that he didn't have to just be a toxic dude. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. He's Jim DeRogatis. And this week, we're going to assist a listener who's looking for some musical help. We're going to talk to a mom who's got some uh, issues with toxic masculinity. As she says, she's trying to empower her young son who wants to avoid that syndrome. But still listen to good music. That's coming up later in the show. First, a topic rife with toxic attitudes, diss tracks. Stan, Stan, son, listen, man, dad isn't mad, but how you gonna name yourself after a man gun and have a man bun? So, Greg, this week we thought we would play our favorite diss tracks, not only in hip-hop, which is a, an art form that's rife with them. We have Machine Gun Kelly and Eminem feuding right now. Of course, we had Pusha T and Drake. It's been there from the beginning, and it goes back to trading the dozens, right? I'm going to insult you. Schoolyard taunts. Your mother's so big yeah. when she sits around the house, right? All that nonsense. Exactly. And hip-hop uh, ran with it. Uh, they took that uh, 
tradition from the schoolyards into into music and and and, and the trading of insults uh, was a core element in how an MC would get discovered in the early days. You know, you would have these battle raps between MCs, and the guy who got in the best disses yeah. was often anointed the winner and was the guy with the career in his in his future. So this idea of disrespecting someone, uh, ideally with humor, I think that's how it works best, uh, is not confined to hip-hop. We're going to go right back to the beginning, in fact. I think this is one of popular music's first and most famous diss tracks. 1962, Joe Tex gets into it with James Brown. Joe Tex was uh, an R&B singer, a really good one, who was, not surprisingly, uh, born and raised in Texas. His real name was Joseph Arrington. And he and James Brown got Mm. into it, and it lasted for years. Uh, They were both on the same label, Detroit's Anna Records, for a period in the mid-50s. Apparently, Brown recorded a tune that Tex had first popularized. Brown had more success with it, changed it around some. Then Brown said, if you got a problem with that, I challenge you to a duel, you know, a musical duel. And then uh, Joe Tex divorced uh, his first wife, who wound up with James Brown. And Brown, rather <laughs> cheekily, sends Tex a letter and says, uh, when the relationships ended, when the musical collaboration with that woman ended, uh, you can have her back now. <laughs> so Joe Tex <laughs> writes a song in 1962 called You Keeper. <laughs> And he had, he calls Brown out by name. And, you know, mm. Brown's an intimidating figure, right? James, I got your letter. Came to me today. You said I could have my baby back, but I don't want her that way. You keep her, <laughs> right? It, this went on for years afterwards. There were other tracks in this uh, musical diss feud. Mm. Uh, Joe Tex would come out on stage on occasion in a ratty old cape and roll a la- around on the floor as if he was having a seizure because, of course, that was, you know, the cape was part of Brown's right. shtick, right? But, you know, who's remembered in posterity? I really, you know, obviously James Brown is a a legend, you know, uh, the godfather of soul. Joe even had a problem with that nickname, said, you ain't the godfather of soul. Anyway, Joe Tex is remembered for this song. There were other accomplishments in his life. But here it is, you keeper, Joe Tex on Sound Opinions. James, I got your letter. It came to me today. You said I could have my baby back, but I don't want her that way. So you keep her, you keep her, because man, she belongs to you. She didn't make up her own mind to come on home to me. So I found me someone else, and we're happy as can be. So you keep her. You keep her because now she belongs to But you can tell I said hello, James. And remember to always be a lady. Cause you see, when she was with me, James, I taught her that a lady stays in a lady's place. And I was the one who taught her. Ask her, didn't I teach her how to make up her face? How to pick the clothes And the jewelry to wear And I was the one who taught her How to style her hair My, my, my She left me After I taught her these things 
That is you keeper. <laughs> Joe Tex, man. He doesn't want his wife back. And he says later in the song, you know, I found happiness with somebody else. It's okay. I so. appreciate uh, guys who name names when they when yeah. they dish out their insults, you James. know? James. That was the first word in the song. James, I'm Not talking to you. Not only just between you and me, brother, but the yeah. whole world is going to hear about it now. There you go. And uh, I got a hit out of it as well. You know, I, I want to go to an artist who uh, basically made a career out of dissing people in, in music. But very, as you said, humor is a big part of this. And the humor in, in Mojo Nixon's uh, music has always been a key element. The psychobilly artist, uh, Mojo Nixon, he was with uh, uh, an ar- another artist named Skid Roper in a duo in the 80s. And they, the reason I even knew about them is because they would always come up with a song that was dissing somebody that was popular on the charts. There was a song about Debbie Gibson and Rick yeah, Astley yeah. and MTV VJ Martha Quinn. He has his solo debut, Mojo Nixon. Uh, he, he got rid of Skid. Him and Skid had pirated parting of the ways. Just Mojo <laughs> Nixon for this 1990 album, Otis. I think this is the apex of his career of diss tracks. Uh, I think we can all agree. I think before Big Lebowski got to it, before, uh, before the dude proclaimed the eagles, mm-hmm. uh, a pox upon humanity, I think a lot of us were in the same pocket. Uh, and Mojo uh, understood that vibe. In 1990, he had a song that said simply, Don Henley must die. Uh, and a lot of us were kind of nodding, you know, he's got a point. Well, and, and not, <laughs> not to just seem gratuitous, the Eagles broke the $100 ticket yeah. mark. Then they broke the $200 ticket mark. You know, eventually they broke like the $500 concert ticket. Well, in addition to, uh, to making music, I mean, obviously they had a ton of hits. And I'm probably insulting a ton of people by just saying that, you know, the Eagles didn't exactly have a huge cachet in, in uh, sort of the indie uh, scene and and, uh, and the whole idea that uh, they were kind of smug about it too. Uh, yeah. It did not uh, enamor them to to people like Mojo Nixon. Uh, the lines in the song don't don't let them get back together. This is the whole idea about the Eagles. Were now uh, there was a parting of the ways. Don't let them get back together with Glenn Fry. Don Henley must die. Yes, and then <laughs> at the end of the song, you know, he gets in a shot at Sting too, and everybody's going, "Yes, thank yeah, you, yeah, yeah, thank same, you for that." That's same like the club. trifecta. You same got Don club. Henley, Glenn Fry, and Sting all getting dissed in the same song. Mojo Nixon with Don Henley must die from 1990 on Sound Opinions.
That is Mojo Nixon with Don Henley Must Die. And to prove that Don Henley, well, maybe he doesn't need to die after all. He can take a joke. He actually got on stage with Mojo Nixon and helped him sing that song in, like, 1992 in Texas. I'm not sure if that uh, comes close to redeeming him for his many sins, but, but, but all right, makes me think a little bit better. Leonard Skinner, all right, Sweet Home Alabama. I think, you know, there's no way to talk about diss songs and not talk about this, one of the most famous of all time, Skinner's second album, 1974. I think it's also probably the most misunderstood diss track of all time. Neil Young had written two songs that got under the skin of uh, Ronnie Van Zandt. One is lesser known, Alabama. It's not one of Neil Young's best, and he's kind of disowned that song. The other is Southern Man, which is a great song. You know, decrying Southern racism, Southern violence. Southern Man better keep your Even Neil later admitted, I might have done it with too broad a brush. Mm. Let's not forget, you know, the South also gave us Faulkner and so many great traditions, right? So Southern Man comes out. It's it's painting this broad attack on uh, a certain mentality, which is still with us. And Leonard Skinner fires back. I heard Mr. Young sing about her, talking about Dixie. Uh, I heard old Neil put her down. Well, I hope Neil Young will remember a Southern Man don't need him around anyhow. Now, uh, what Van Zant tried to make clear in many interviews is that he didn't want everybody to put the South in one basket. The second verse, uh, which this is a politician uh, that's more controversial, you know, he sings, uh, in Birmingham, they love the governor. Mm. And he's talking about George Wallace, the segregationist. What everyone, many people, have missed is he sings in Birmingham, They Love the Governor, and that wonderful Skinnered trio of backing vocalists mm-hmm. go, boo, 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 mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's a sarcastic line. And Van Zandt goes on to say, you know, we did what we could do, meaning we tried to be allies mm-hmm. to the civil rights movement. Watergate doesn't bother me. Does your conscience bother you? What's he saying there? He's talking to the North. He's saying, we've all made mistakes. Yeah. All of us have not been maybe activist enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, just don't put the South down uh, for some individuals. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's a great song. Um, Skinner would sometimes perform in Neil Young t-shirts yeah. circa Two Nights right. the Night to make the message a little clearer. And somehow that all gets uh, reduced to wave your Confederate flag, drive your pickup truck with the shotgun on the back. All right, one of Rock's greatest songs above and beyond the dissing, Sweet Home Alabama by Leonard Skinner.
That's some of a recent episode of Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago called Distracks and Rock Doctors with Jim DeRogatis and Greg Cott. And thanks to Brendan Banazak for his help in sharing that with you. Thanks also to Paul Tudor, who's a big Sound Opinions fan and contacted us at RNZ Podcast Hour on Twitter to recommend some of his favourite episodes, including a recent one on disco, a series they did on Bob Dylan, classic album dissections, especially one about the replacements, and interviews with Brian Eno and Tony Vis- Gonti. Space, the final frontier. It isn't just some vast arena for people to explore using the latest, shiniest technology. It's also a place that can hold important stories about us humans too. And that's what the emerging discipline of space archaeology is trying to study and preserve. From the Sapiens podcast, this is from a recent episode called is space a human place? Host Jen Shannon meets Alice Gorman, an Australian archaeologist who was working in heritage management with Aboriginal communities when she realised that space junk, like old satellites, has heritage value too. Over time, Alice learned that there were others. She was not alone in the universe of space archaeology. There were a couple of other Australians working on similar things, and in the U.S., there was Dr. Beth O'Leary of New Mexico State University. And she had, in 1999, applied to NASA for some funds to catalogue everything that had been left at the Apollo 11 landing site. This small group of budding space archaeologists started to work together. And in 2003, they got the World Archaeological Congress to recognize that, quote, the material, culture, and places associated with space exploration are significant at individual, local, organizational, national, and international levels. As space industries and eventual space colonization develop in the 21st century, it is necessary to consider... This was a major milestone for Alice and her colleagues, and it rang out across the broader archaeological community as a call to action. Over the next 15 or so years, they did their best to study landing sites, satellites, and other space junk. But hidden in that very same statement was a warning of the immense challenges ahead. The cooperation of international space agencies, national space agencies, the aerospace industry, and the principal astronomical and astronautical associations is an essential part in ensuring the appropriate management of the cultural heritage of space exploration. The task force will identify relevant international... I happened to see in November 2015, NASA put out a call for applications for its next cohort of astronaut candidates. Justin Walsh is an associate professor of art history and archaeology at Chapman University. In 2015, he was among the still small but growing group of space archaeologists. As it turned out, they ended up getting 18,000 applications for 12 spots. Um, It was by far the most they had ever received. Uh, But that's interesting because if you look at their requirements, they state certain necessities, certain qualifications. And so one of the qualifications that's required is a STEM degree. That's science, technology, engineering, and math. That can be at any level. It could be a bachelor's degree, master's, PhD, but it, but it has to be in a STEM field. At the exact same time, they tell you what kinds of degrees are not qualifying. And included in that was social sciences. And even more specifically, more explicitly, we can say, 
there was a parenthesis, open parenthesis, geography, anthropology, archaeology, closed parenthesis. It wasn't just a closed parenthesis. It was a closed door on Justin's hope for an archaeologist in space. So I saw that and frankly, I got mad. <laughs> Justin knew that NASA was thinking about long duration space flights. And he thought they'd never really considered the cultural implications of stuffing a small group of people into a tiny living space for months or even years at a time. So then I started thinking, how could I demonstrate the, the utility of a social sciences approach? He thought for a while, and then he called his colleague, Alice Gorman. And he kind of said, um, he said, oh, there's something I want to talk to you about. Okay, this sounds intriguing. And he um, pitched the International Space Station idea to me. The idea was simple. The International Space Station has been continuously occupied since November of 2000. That makes it the most significant human experiment in living in space. Or, as Walsh and Gorman later described it, a micro-society in a mini-world. And Justin wanted to study it. And I thought, wow, this makes so much sense, uh, so much sense that, you know, it's quite amazing that, that no one has actually thought of doing this before. But that's, that's always the way these things are, aren't they? They're not obvious until somebody does them. So they made a plan, found some money, and the International Space Station Archaeological Project was born. But again, there was the whole not being able to visit space thing. So they had to get creative. NASA has collected more than a million photos of the interior of the ISS, and they've made some of them freely available online. These are digital photos, so they have all kinds of data attached. Dates, times, exact locations, lots of stuff. That metadata allowed Justin and Alice to map the relationships between the people and objects in these photos over time. Once they did that, they started to see patterns that no astronaut ever thought to document, let alone analyze. Everywhere throughout the space station, there's like little um, elastic bands attached to the wall or Velcro tabs because you can't let go of anything or it will just drift away. And astronauts say, you know, they have done that. They've sort of let go of something here, turned their head away, and when they turn it back, they cannot see the thing. And the thing might not have drifted far, but it's impossible to actually pick out. So things get lost all the time. There's little Velcro tabs everywhere. There's plastic baggies and little plastic baggies inside big plastic baggies. Alice saw all these as more than just clever ways to keep things from getting lost. She saw gravity surrogates. A whole lot of the materials they use and the behaviours that they enact are attempting to replace gravity with material things. And that's something I find incredibly interesting and would like to do a lot more work on. Billions and billions of dollars have been spent to build these rockets and space stations that allow us to escape gravity. But it turns out we replaced it with plastic baggies. And that's not all they've learned so far. Justin was looking at some photos of one of the Russian areas of the space station, when he spotted something out of the ordinary. And this is the uh, Russian service module that is where there are two crew berths, there is a galley, there is exercise equipment, 
This is also a place where cosmonauts perform research, do experiments, uh, that kind of thing. And so all kinds of different aspects of life go on here. So Justin was looking at a bunch of pictures of this particular module, and he saw, oh, okay, this is where this person slept for a while, and this is where that person ate. What I noticed in this Russian module is that there were a number of pictures and other kinds of toys and maybe like small paintings and a national flag or a mission patch stuck on the wall. And as I was looking at these, I thought, wow, there's a lot of different things up there. Some of them are religious. In fact, they were Russian Orthodox icons. There was a gold cross. But then some things were secular, like I said, the flags or the mission patches. But also I noticed pictures of historic, um, kind of historic personages relating to space. Specifically, Russian personages, like Yuri Gagarin, who was the first human in space. So I started to look at other pictures because I was like, oh, is that stuff always up there? And I realized that if you look from the very beginning, from the very first, as they call it, expedition to the space station in November 2000, there's always been something up there. But it's not always the same thing. It's not always the same number of things. It's not always the same kinds of things. So what I did was I took uh, 50 photos from 2000 to 2014, and I cataloged all the things I saw on that wall in each of those photos. And surprisingly or not, he saw patterns. What it showed was that astronauts were making different choices about what kinds of things they wanted to put on display. And when I say put on display, it's not just for other crew members. This is actually also one of the main areas where video conferences happen back to Earth. It's especially when every time there's a new crew that goes up there, because they've just entered there, if you're watching on NASA TV or online or what have you, you can see it. That's where they do the video conference, where they're talking with their families like, hey, what a great ride up here. I hope you're doing well, etc. And you can see what's up there. Identity, politics, religion. These are essential elements of what makes us human. And what Justin and Alice were observing was the first time humans were figuring them out in space. How do you pray in space? How do you participate in politics when you're so far outside the borders of your homeland? Who are we? Who are you in space? We can think about it this way. These cosmonauts in a way represent Russia, but they also have their own communities, families, and relationships back home. What they choose to display or not display reflects the dynamics of those relationships. But it's always been about more than just stuff. As Alice understood from the beginning, there are important things at stake here. People tend to think of space technology as, you know, it's all shiny metal and glass and nothing is alive. Uh, you know, it's all very technical and removed from, from human existence. But this International Space Station shows that it, it isn't and shouldn't have to be like that. It can be full of mess. It can be full of little things that people find comfort in or use to provoke memories or uh, use to support their individual or group identities while they're up there. How will spacefaring humans create a sense of identity? How will they maintain connections with people and groups on Earth when they venture deeper and deeper into the universe? And who will we be? when we're being born, growing up, and living our lives so far from Earth. 
Understanding how this works and how it might be sustained is going to be critical, I think, for Moon and Mars settlements, where people are going to be even further away and on Mars for a long time at least with no chance of returning. So how uh, material and visual culture is used to maintain relationships, is used to support individual well-being, isn't a trivial side question. This is at the heart of everything and we're just starting to see how this might work by investigating the International Space Station. Host Jen Shannon speaking to space archaeologists Alice Gorman and Justin Walsh in Episode 7 of Sapiens called Is Space a Human Place? And thanks to Chip Colwell and Catherine Jaffe for letting me share that with you. And that's about all from the podcast hour for now. We've been listening to The Nightmare Before Christmas, Uncover Bomb On Board, Sound Opinions and Sapiens. From me, Richard Scott, thanks for listening. I'll be back to share some favourite shows from the past year, same time next week. Until then, see you. to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.